This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. The time for empty talk is over. The ECB is ready to do whatever it takes because Brexit means Brexit. Hello and thank you for joining us for this Blue Conversation podcast. Amundi is the largest asset management firm in Europe. And today, our topic is, in fact, Europe. We're going to be talking about a whole host of issues facing the EU, amongst them the COVID-19 pandemic, the economies of member states, climate change, immigration, as well as relations with both Beijing and Washington, to name but a few of the subjects we'll be addressing. Well, we're joined by the former Italian Prime Minister Enrico Letta. We also have with us Jean-Jacques Barberis, who's the Executive Committee member and Head of Institutional Clients and the Corporate Division and of the ESG business line at Amundi. Plus, we're joined from New York by Thomas Philippon, Professor of Finance at New York University, Stern School of Business and Administrator of the think tank Europa Nova. Thank you all very much for being with us. Jean-Jacques, let me begin by asking you to set the scene and tell us where you see Europe's place in the world and what you view the state of the world as being right now. I think there are four things that uh, at the moment uh, I think we particularly look like uh, at Amundi and maybe that are useful to set up a little the scene. Uh, the first one that we are all looking at of course uh, are the consequences of the Europe of the US elections uh, and so we are following basically uh, it episodes after episodes. Uh, and the thing that worries us a little or at least that we are looking quite carefully about is that I think a number of experts or analysts are expecting the results of the election to change fundamentally the positioning of the US, notably vis-a-vis its main international counterparts. Uh, And I strongly doubt it. I don't think that there would be such a huge change uh, if a Democrat is uh, in the White House afterwards. Of course, there will be some major changes. But this being said, I think a number of things that Mr. Trump is the symptom of will continue to remain. So that's one of the first things we're looking at. The second, if we look at European level at the moment, uh, and again, to challenge a little bit uh, the general vision that is to say that Europe seems to come out of this crisis more united than in the past. This is for sure major steps have been taken. This being said there are still remaining divergences within European economies that are important and that have not vanished so that's I think something that is important to uh, have in mind also when we look uh, at uh, the state of the world at the moment. Uh, Third thing uh, that uh, worries us uh, a lot uh, and I think uh, that uh, Thomas will comment on that uh, probably uh, extensively uh, is the fact that we're probably at the very beginning uh, of a massive social crisis. Uh, I think we've entered into that already. Uh, and we just have to remind us all that 10 years after the great financial crisis, we've seen some populist, I don't like the word, governments taking the power in a number of Western liberal democracies. And we're re-entering into a phase of social crisis that is going to be massive. And I think that's something important to take in mind in the future. And the fourth thing we're looking at, or maybe that's on the positive side, uh, I think in comparison to uh, 10 years ago, uh, something what strikes me particularly is the fact that uh, the green agenda is not totally off the table this time. Uh, it seems to be part of the agenda this time, which uh, is probably good. Uh, and uh, in a way, I think the biggest thing that happened in the last month uh, regarding that issue is not in Europe, it is in China. The announcement of China getting net zero uh, is something in 260, so which is a little far away uh, from what science would request. Nevertheless, uh, is probably a, a huge change that we, uh, we have uh, ahead of us. 
Well, thank you very much indeed for that, Jean-Jacques. I'd like to turn to you now, Enrico, and ask for your thoughts on the unprecedented levels of support that central banks have given countries on both sides of the Atlantic. What do you make of this situation? And what do you think some of the possible medium-term consequences could be? I mean, are the US and the EU more at risk? Uh, I think the European Union uh, gave a great uh, uh, sign of resilience uh, during the pandemic in the period between May and July. Uh, the very beginning was uh, a very complicated uh, time for, for the European Union because the lack of coordination, because of many problems in terms of how to react to the recession. But then I think the decisions that uh, the European Council took are something revolutionary in Europe. The launch of the Eurobond, because in reality it is a sort of Eurobond, uh, the quicker response in comparison with what happened uh, 10 years ago, as we said before. Uh, 10 years ago, the response to the previous crisis took four years, from eight to 12, because uh, whatever it takes uh, speech by Mario Draghi was in 12, because the ESM establishment was in 12, and the crisis began in uh, uh, eight, even uh, before. Now, after four months, not four years, we had the response. Of course, it's a big response, dimension, large scale of dimension, and uh, the beginning of a new era in Europe in terms of uh, Eurobond and the rest. So I'm uh, optimistic on that. The big problem is uh, what uh, Mr. Barberi said just one minute before, the risk of a social crisis in, at the beginning of 21, because the impact of the recession uh, in social terms uh, with the continuity of this uh, unemployment, uh, uh, lack of consumptions and, and so on and so forth, risk to be very tough. So the big problem is uh, to have the implementation of all these decisions as soon as possible. This is, I think, timing will be decisive in the next year. Thomas, I'd like to ask for your perspective now. Would you say you largely agree with what Jean-Jacques and Enrico have said? So, uh, with respect to... So, Jean-Jacques started by whether things are going to change if uh, and when uh, there's a change in the White House. Um, I think that what the to me the, the clearest thing that would change under our democratic um, administration would be um, with respect to climate change, because in some other respect, uh, I agree that Trump is more a symptom than the cause. But, but for uh, everything having to do with climate change, uh, this administration is really f- way off to the far right in all, even compared to start, uh, many Republicans actually. So I think that's the clear thing that would change. There is no doubt that uh, any democratic admission gets back into Paris Accord and gets back into engaging the global community. That's, that's a foregone conclusion. The rest, if you think about the other big picture, which is the much more aggressive stance towards China, that is not going to change, I agree. Um, then in terms of the reaction to the crisis, I think that um, it's broadly similar on both sides of the Atlantic. So if you look at the reaction of the military policy, it's very similar. Uh, and for good reasons, by the way, I think the both central bank did a good job. If you think about the reaction of uh, the, mon- the fiscal authority, if anything is slightly better in Europe, actually, we are more efficient at supporting people. We, we just uh, happen to have... Uh, 
slightly uh, wider safety net and also a slightly better way of uh, using them. So I think in, in fact, we were more efficient given how much we spent, we managed to sustain a household um, income better than in the US, but it's still broadly similar. The differences are uh, in the politics a lot, I think. So I think the one thing to keep in mind with the COVID is it was a challenge and a common enemy. So in Europe, uh, that's what we, exactly like Enrico was saying. That's what we saw during the, e, e, the EC, during the U European Council. The fact that you have a common enemy allows you to just move one step further. And that was a gigantic step. So I think that was striking. In the US, the politics has been more complicated because the situation initially was also much more conflictual. And again, because uh, this administration is really far, not just far to the right, but far to the extreme in terms of its uh, you know, relationship with science. And so there was just something which is, this was nonsensical about it and created much more divisions than you would have expected. There's much less national unity today than you would have expected under the common, the common uh, enemy uh, uh, shock, which is uh, historically epidemics or wars tend to create unity within the, at least initially. And that didn't happen, but that's, I think, specific to that administration. Uh, in terms of the challenges that we should be talking about next, clearly there's going to be the unemployment and the issue of business failures uh, and then what it's going to do to the, uh, you know, the economy. And you've mentioned the remarkable efforts made by the European Union. Would you say this is proof of a common goal uh, that can actually be achieved despite being under pressure today? Uh, I think we are uh, facing now uh, a problem in terms of uh, uh, how to implement all the decisions and how to have the institutions working because is a is a, now is a problem of governance is a problem of uh, effectiveness of of governance and the european union is not always perfect uh, because of the the problem of unanimity the problem of uh, majority votes and and now we are experiencing what how difficult it is for instance the connection with the rule of law uh, values uh, conditionality for uh, countries like uh, Hungary and Poland who were supporting high-scale dimension of the next generation EU plan uh, and so I think it, it will be complicated but I'm sure that at the end of the day the solution will be uh, will be there because it is impossible to uh, think uh, to to uh, be in the year 21 without all these tools. These tools are absolutely necessary in, in all the European countries. So I think they will find an agreement. Uh, I'm a little bit more worried about uh, uh, Brexit uh, because Brexit is, is there and Brexit is an obstacle that uh, it will be not easy to uh, overcome. And I'd like to turn now to the issue of Brexit, which is due to take full effect very soon. What would you say are the political and economic impacts of Brexit, Enrico? I think if they don't have an agreement, the impact will be very tough. And it will be uh, terrible in terms of uh, consequences, in terms of uh, uh, lack of competitiveness, in terms of costs, uh, in terms of consequences for the future, because if the divorce is so tough, is so bad, it is uh, very difficult then later on to try to find a way to work together. And Europe and the uh, UK, they have to work together in the future on security, on uh, uh, foreign trade, on many other issues. And if the divorce 
uh, turn into a nightmare, uh, I think it will be uh, something that will last for a bit. I don't think uh, Boris Johnson can allow a disaster such. And I think the, <laughs> at the end of the day is in, this, in his hand the responsibility to say, okay, now we find an agreement. Usually he is someone who is trying to wait until the last second. And uh, I have some idea that at the end of the day, at the last second, we will try to find an agreement. But uh, the big problem is, is still the Irish border and uh, they have to find an agreement there. They have to find a, a special uh, situation, legal and framework for uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, it's not so difficult. It's really a problem of uh, uh, political flagships, mm -hmm. of identity, of, uh, but they have to find an agreement. And Thomas, perhaps you could give us a US perspective on the subject of Brexit. I think the vision on this topic is uh, very, uh, they, they, they just use it to talk about internal politics. So it was clearly just, you know, one side. So President Trump took the side of Boris Johnson. And then um, so you had, uh, it was like more like a screen on which could project all the national politics of the US uh, in a very predictable way. Otherwise, uh, to a first order, they don't care. Um, you know, like every country has its own myth, like France is, has the myth that we have the best civil service in the world, which is not true. Um, and then the UK has the myth that it has a special relationship with the US, which is whatever, you know, they're going to find that out the hard way when they negotiate the trade treaty. There's no, that's complete. Yes, there's no special relationship. There is, you know, countries are selfish and they will negotiate exactly in the same way they would with anybody. So I think to a large extent, Brexit has no impact in the US. Um, the only thing is the people who were involved in the effort to bring peace to Ireland, they remember they are the ones who are worried. They are the only ones who really understand and then they are, they are, they are a bit worried. I think everybody else just doesn't really care. And Jean-Jacques, could you offer us your views on the subject of Brexit? On the uh, Irish situation, I think it's worth uh, having a little uh, memory about history. And I'm not talking about uh, the end of the 19th. I'm talking about the end of the 19th from the previous century. Uh, I think we have to remember all that the Irish question has been the poison into the British politics during 40 years at the end of the 19th century. Uh, and in a way or another, they are living almost here some kind of a recall of that period that has been really the thing on which uh, even the names of some of the parties in the UK are linked to that period. Uh, so this is something that is extremely deep, uh, extremely complicated. Uh, and I think that's personally where I, I see the worry, because I think there are some pragmatic solutions potentially on the ground. But I would say the vivacity, I'm not sure the word vivacity exists in English, but let's uh, consider it. It does uh, of the question politically in Ireland uh, and uh, in the British history remains so high that I think that might be one of the things that at the end of the day might be the problem for the last second that we all hope that good sense will take the lead finally. Okay, well, let's hope so. Moving on now to another topic, immigration. Can we handle it better here in Europe? And what does it mean for the relationship with other Mediterranean countries? Enrico, your thoughts? I think the European Commission launched a new program, a new project, and this new project is the first time that there's a, a comprehensive, large uh, idea of a, 
migration policy reform or the creation of a European migration policy. I think it is not enough, but it is a good step. Uh, the big problem is the fact that uh, I don't know, frankly speaking, that um, the 27 is the right framework to find a solution because it is impossible really to uh, work together with countries like Hungary and Poland. They have a completely different approach on this topic, but they are able to stop the rest of Europe. So I'm wondering if at the end of the day it's better to go at, I don't know, 15 or 20, the most affected countries or the countries that can cooperate together. Otherwise, it will be always the same problem. And so I hope this package can be uh, approved by the Council and then by the European Parliament, but it will take time. And we have problem today and next year. It would be a problematic year. So I, I think this topic will still be there. And I, I have to underline that migration was one of the main reasons of Brexit. Migration is one of the main reasons of populist successes in uh, Europe. Uh, and uh, I hope uh, this, this uh, solution can, can come, and I hope that uh, this solution can come in a very effective way. And once again, Thomas, perhaps you could give us your perspective from the other side of the Atlantic on this issue of migration. Um, so clearly there, there was one of the main, I mean, the two main topics that Trump used in 2016 to win the elections were uh, migration and uh, protectionism. So he broke ranks uh, with the traditional Republican approach towards free trade by saying free trade is nonsense. We need to put up tariffs and protect our industries. And he also, to some extent, deviated from the traditional um, approach to migration by being much more anti-immigrant. Um, and I think that uh, that will have a long-lasting impact on US politics. And were it not for COVID, it's quite likely that these two topics would still be center stage in the US today. They are still, I would say, important, but they are overshadowed by COVID. And so I think the, the main reason we don't talk about this. If you look at the data, the issues at the, on the Mexican border, they haven't really changed at all over the past 12 months. Um, but the fact that we don't talk about it is because we talk about COVID. I think it's more, uh, it's, that's the effect. A few years ago, Enrico uh, saying at our forum, if the only answer to immigration in Europe is either Pope Francois or Marine Le Pen, all the Western democracies have a huge problem. And I think that that's a, that's a good quote to remember. And probably the fact that there have been some strong evolutions at European level, this being said, uh, are a foot in the good sense. But I think uh, it's, a, it's a nice quote. OK, and Thomas, I believe you wanted to add something. That's a good quote for the US as well, because uh, on immigration, Trump is to the right of uh, Marine Le Pen by quite a bit. Uh, and, and some of the more uh, dreamy people on the left, they are at least as you know, far as the, the other side of the quote. So I think that that could oppress the US as well, and very much so. Um, the difference in the US is there used to be a bit more agreement. That was a topic where there was a bit of bipartisan support for sensible solution in the middle. And Trump broke that. And so the question is whether we're going to, how that's going to evolve. I think there is scope there for agreement. I don't think the U.S. is going to go back to being pro-free trade in the way it used to be, because that's just not very popular in the electorate. 
But I think immigration being an issue where there is a little bit of um, bipartisan support is something that is feasible, actually. Okay, well, thank you for sharing that, Thomas. Let's talk more now about the situation in Italy specifically. It appears to be difficult. The country does not seem to have recovered from the sovereign debt crisis. In this context, Enrico, could you provide us an update on the situation on a political, economic and sociological levels? What reforms are needed? I realise this is a, a very big question. It is. Uh, in political and electoral terms, I think uh, Italy today is experiencing maybe, but I'm, I'm very cautious on that, uh, a period of stability uh, and government uh, has some support today and he is able to work for uh, a while. I think it's, it's a good news because we need stability in this very period. Uh, for Italy, it will be a great opportunity. I think the most important opportunity since 30 years, uh, this recovery fund and this next generation EU, because Italy will have 209 billion euros in four years. And for the first time after 30 years, uh, we will have money for investments. And Italy had a lack of investments. Italy had many other problems, productivity and other problems, but the lack of investments were the most important problem in the last 30 years uh, because of the debt and because of the cuts that were uh, necessary for the debt. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, this opportunity can be, if well implemented, can be decisive, for instance, to close the gap between North and South or to work to close the gap between North and South, that is still a great problem in, uh, in my country, and also to uh, relaunch um, competitiveness, to attract uh, talent and people. Uh, I think it's, uh, it can be a great opportunity to have uh, an infrastructural relaunch of the country in terms of uh, sustainability, so uh, high-speed rail, uh, also in the south, that was not the case until now. So I think it's a great opportunity. Government today is stable, so I'm optimistic. I have to be optimistic. Absolutely. I think we all are. Thomas, I'd like to ask now how you would qualify the global influence of Europe, uh, given the increasing confrontation between the US and China, not to mention the trade war. So I think that, uh, yeah, what's interesting with COVID is it happens at a time where there were already some interesting trends in the, um, the evolution of the US and Europe. And, um, and some are going to be changed and some are going to be reinforced. So take, if we take a step back, um, if you look at the standards of living of the median household, the Europe was doing better than the US mostly because uh, we have less inequality and we have more competitive markets in many goods and services that actually matter. So you guys in Paris, you pay less than half of what I pay here for having internet at home, like broadband connections, and for having a cell phone. It's something between two and three times less. And that's thanks to the regulation and better uh, market uh, regulation in Europe. That's true for telecom. It's true for transport as well. Uh, even though we don't use them as much because of COVID, but that was like, there was a trend there. It's true for energy. It's true for retail. It's true for health. 
And, it, and these are things that matter a lot for the median household. So in terms of standard of living, Europe was doing, was really reaping the, the benefit of good policies over the past 20 years. Well, the US was exactly the opposite. So that was like one side. The other side was if you looked at the tech landscape, then it was somehow the reverse, which is Europe was lagging. And if anything, the lag was increasing over time, right? Because the, all the leading internet firms are American or Chinese, and that gap was increasing. So then COVID arrives, and you can see both things playing out. The fact that we have a good infrastructure in Europe means that we, you know, we can switch to, uh, many people have access to high quality internet services, so they can start working from home. So that, that you know, we can, that helps us a lot smooth the shock. On the other hand, the shift towards the digital economy is staggering. I mean, it was happening, but just to give you a sense, I was looking at just some data this, this morning. It took 10 years. If you look at the, total retail in the US, and you ask what share is uh, online, e-commerce, okay? Uh, it took 10 years to go from 6% to 16%. From 2009 to 2019, the share of retail that's online went from 6% to 16%, 10 years. It took eight weeks to go from 16 to 27. That's off, that's the COVID shock, it's just off the chart. And that trend, now that it started, is not, it's not coming back. Okay. Even if we go back to uh, having a little bit more of on in-person shopping in the future, uh, this massive shock is going to be there to stay. And so that means that the challenge for Europe that existed before COVID, which was to make sure you, uh, Europe would not be left behind in the digital economy, that challenge today is two or three times more important than it, so, than it was before COVID. So I think for Europe, that's the, the most important thing. What I find super interesting, however, is... Uh, that Europe is not alone. And because of COVID, I do a lot of Zoom conferences, which means that I don't have a constraint uh, of flying around. So I'm giving, over the past three weeks, I gave five talks in Asia. Okay. So Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, Korea. Um, and it's very striking that they view these issues very much in a way which looks very European. So in Japan, it's almost, I could I could cite you We'll give you a quote from a discussion with people from the Ministry of Finance, and you would not tell the difference between that quote and a quote from the European Commission, because they are like, we, we like free trade, we have the rule of law in international trade, but we are very worried about the dominance of the Chinese and the, and the Americans in terms of Google, Facebook, and the internet platforms. And so we would like to find ways to have rules to protect privacy, protect data, and have you know a little bit of competition in that landscape, very much like uh, like Europe. So the silver lining there is even though the challenge is much bigger than six months ago, uh, we have allies you know, around the world and there is a strong demand um, for many, many countries to have better rules of the game in that space. And everybody looks to Europe as a place where at least people are trying to do something. So it's very striking to see that like, if you go outside Europe, people know about the directive to for uh, the protection of privacy in Europe. Like People know it. Uh, if they don't think of it as some, some technocratic dream in Brussels, they think, oh, that's actually a good idea. Maybe we should be doing the same. So I think there is, there is room for, for European influence in, the, in that specific way. Enrico, Jean-Jacques, could I ask for your comment? I think it's a great opportunity for Europe. And uh, the European Commission, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, decided to have technology and uh, huma technological humanism, if I may say, as one of the flagships. So there's room to have success and to attract and to be leaders 
at world level, exactly as Thomas said. Oh, it's something that I think uh, also that I find also striking um, when you're discussing uh, with investors, which is basically what we're doing all day long, uh, is that uh, the storytelling vis-à-vis Europe has changed uh, in the past uh, eight months, uh, meaning that the markets are buying the idea clearly that Europe came out more united than it was Uh, because of the crisis, where U.S. is more divided uh, than it was. Uh, and I think this, if I, it's not that often in the in recent history that EU has a good storytelling. Huh? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's something on which uh, probably uh, we should capitalize uh, as European countries, as European industry also, uh, and financial industry in particular. But I think this is uh, pretty striking. Uh, and uh, I echo what Thomas was saying uh, on the digital part of the question. It's also true uh, that uh, you have uh, conversations with, for instance, uh, Chinese officials that tend to consider that the European green taxonomy is a great idea, wh which I think is also uh, an area uh, where there is potential uh, influence uh, for Europe based on its uh, historical leadership on the subject. And Jean-Jacques, can we say that Europe, thanks to its long-standing efforts, is a leader when it comes to tackling climate change? I know this is a topic close to your heart. So what does that herald for the future then? You can consider that uh, Europe is a leader because uh, so far it's the only continent uh, that has uh, reduced uh, its uh, emissions in comparison to 1990. So that's one thing. Most of the countries uh, that are uh, that are uh, and that are after their tipping points in really lowering down their emissions uh, in absolute terms are European. Uh, it's in Europe where we f you find. Not in the perfect way, uh, but the best, the best carbon pricing mechanisms existing with the EU ETS market that has a lot of t limits, but still that exists. You have a number of carbon taxes that are existing in a number of European countries, in including in France, by the way. Huh? It's still there uh, despite uh, the yellow vest uh, protest. Uh, you have a European financial industry that I believe uh, is clearly a leader uh, in, uh, in that sense. This being said, uh, that's for the yes, for the no part. When you look at what our real emissions are, uh, so meaning the imp including the imported emissions, uh, we have not done the job yet at all. Uh, and a lot of the emissions that we don't do anymore on the European continent are elsewhere. So uh, the, there is clearly a change uh, in the ways our economies uh, and our consumption are, is being driven. The shift has not been done at European level, that's for sure. Um, And I think where uh, the job is not being done yet uh, is how Europe uh, can really, uh, I would say, not it's not only by leading by example, because that, that's one thing that is very important, but also exerts uh, its influence in that area. And for instance, uh, I was uh, referring to that a few seconds ago, a few seconds ago, if uh, in the near future, you have something coherent between the European taxonomy and the Chinese taxonomy, I think that's a huge thing uh, in terms of capacity of political leadership, economic, financial leadership also uh, at European level. So I think the, the situation is a little uh, nuanced uh, if uh, you look at things, uh, I would say, a little frankly. Uh, but this being said, uh, clearly uh, the fact that uh, under the leadership of the Commission, uh, Europe uh, is now really engaging uh, into uh, a net zero target uh, is very important. And for me, something, again, it's history, history speaking, huh? but it's very interesting to see that in the middle uh, of uh, such a social crisis, the European New Deal, the word New Deal is not used in the US anymore, where maybe it should be, is a Green Deal. Uh, and that's probably uh, also a good, a good signal in terms of political leadership uh, at European level at the moment. 
And Enrico, you see this shift and the climate issue uh, as being a, a big deal. Yes, it is clear that Europe is the leader at world level. Uh, we have to be aware of that. There's a big responsibility, but there are also many uh, opportunities that are coming for that. Uh, now it's time to act, and also it's time to act in terms of uh, general alliances at world level. Uh, if we combine these two points, what Thomas said uh, mm -hmm. just before and what we are just saying now, uh, there's room for a European leadership. I think next year, for instance, uh, the G20 will have a European leadership because Italy will be the, the G20 presidency after this year, uh, G20 was missing, uh, missing in action. G20, for instance, can be a place where an alliance among medium powers, medium-sized powers, can, with Europe, take the lead and uh, say to the world, hey, it is not just China and US. Okay, and Thomas, when it comes to this climate shift, do you see any growing influence on US politics or policies in the US? Yeah, so the way I think about it is uh, there are a couple of uh, big, big pieces that are important. The first one is, um, from the US perspective, um, if you look at um, the uh, um, perception of climate change, um, there is only one group which is just completely, you know, out of touch with reality. And these are old conservatives. But uh, if you look at young conservatives, so people who vote Republican who are, say, less than 40, they actually believe climate change is real. Now, they might disagree with how you solve it. They, they might, they are, they're still going to be against big government. They want innovation. But they don't deny that it's an issue. They don't deny that it's a man-made issue. Um, so you, you can talk. I mean, these are perfectly reasonable people you can have normal discussions with. There is a fringe of crazy people. Many of them are in the White House. We just don't like deny the whole fact. But that's. But it's important to understand that on that specific, they are they are very much the minority. So I think that we can be cautiously optimistic that the U.S. is going to come back to the global discussion, uh, either under uh, a democratic administration for sure, or even like at some point with even with a conservative administration uh, made of slightly younger people. So that's kind of for the U.S. Uh, for Europe, I think that uh, the glyph is, I, I'm like with uh, very much in agreement with Jean-Jacques on that one. The glyph is half full, half empty. It's half full because Europe is very good at leading with, by example. So we actually, we do our homework. We try to be uh, good citizens. Uh, but that by itself is not going to change very much because we are also not the big polluters. So if, if Europe wants to uh, keep doing more and have a real impact, there's two things Europe can do. The first one is to be a matchmaker and to be an intermediary between big powers and be able to talk at the same time to China and the US, which is going to be more important going forward, given that the tension between the two is going to stay high. So being able to talk to both sides is going to be one value added of Europe. And the other one, which at the end of the day is going to be the most important, is innovation, which is like, you know, it's still going to be the case that to solve climate change, we need some innovations. Somebody needs to figure out how, how to just uh, store electricity better or have like clean energy. And then whoever makes the innovation first can give it away for free or at least, you know, uh, at a lower cost to everybody else. And that's going to, that's the thing that would really move the, the needle. And uh, on that front, I don't think Europe is quite there yet. Okay, well, we're drawing to a close. I'd just like to ask each of you before we go for a final word on the subject of Europe. Enrico, perhaps you could start. I think the key point is timing uh, because we 
changed completely the storytelling of Europe, as Jean-Jacques said, because of timing, because the very quick response after the uh, COVID recession uh, between May and July. Uh, timing was decisive and that gave a fantastic uh, image to the world. Now we have to keep uh, this, this timing and this uh, uh, possibility to be able to implement. Uh, so I think at the end of the day, timing is my take and the need to be fast and to continue to be fast and to implement uh, a, a speed will be absolutely decisive. And Thomas, what are your uh, key takeaways then on Europe? I think innovation. I think that uh, Europe, at this point, we, we did a lot of good things and now we just need to ramp up our, our ability to innovate. Um, certainly in, in the digital economy, um, and but also in terms of climate change. That's where we can make the biggest contribution to, to the world is by bringing innovation that work that could then be used by other countries to uh, limit uh, the uh, evolution of climate change. And lastly, Jean-Jacques, a, a final word on Europe. My take is social, meaning I think that even if, uh, as uh, Thomas was uh, mentioning, uh, the level of inequalities uh, at European level, uh, it's uh, much less important uh, in comparison to a number uh, of other countries in the world, US in particular. This being said, I think th the social uh, tension we're going to face uh, will only and can only be solved uh, if you try to address the problem uh, by one way or another. So by running also policies that are in capacity to address the problem. Uh, and I think this is a big thing that investors should have in mind. Uh, meaning, for instance, uh, I wouldn't put a lot of money on a company that is doing massive fiscal optimization. Uh, or at least I would not bet it you know, for the next 10 years because I 100% sure that something will come uh, and change that situation for sure because of the social question. Well, thank you all very much indeed for your time, gentlemen. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And thank you to you for listening to this Blue Conversation podcast. I do hope you'll join us again very soon. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.